0: This episode is a bit different from others in this week. It's a lecture I gave in 2007 called The Telos of Beauty, The Common Quest for Theologians and Scientists. I look at the way that beauty has been a point of contact, a nexus for people in the Western theological tradition and for scientists. I even make a note that artists are part of this as well. Hope you enjoy it. This podcast is brought to you by MetaNexus Institute, exploring humanity's most profound questions and challenges. The talk was originally given at the 2007 MetaNexus Conference, Transdisciplinarity and the Unity of Knowledge Beyond the Science and Religion Dialogue, held June 2nd through 6th at the University of Pennsylvania. MetaNexus Institute is a global network of scientists, clergy, scholars and citizens who recognize the need for constructive collaboration between science, religion and the humanities in communities and universities in 43 countries. We are engaged in interdisciplinary, intercultural and interreligious dialogue, research and education. For more information, visit www.metanexus.net. I begin with a citation uh a quote from the great mathematician and philosopher Alfred North Whitehead. He says that the teleology of the universe is directed toward the production of beauty. And so as I begin and uh, outline this uh, paper I've written, The Telos of Beauty, a common quest for for theologians and scientists, I use Whitehead's quote, as a way of provoking further thought. In other words, Whitehead pointed to the nature of beauty in the universe and in creation as something which is teleological, that it's something which directs our life and our study, uh, not as something that can be placed at the periphery. uh, When we think of beauty, for example, as cosmology or that sort of thing. So um, this is my work to begin to bring together Different fields of study. And really, when I was talking with Philip Clayton after his presentation on a Saturday night, we we talked about could this could beauty be a transdisciplinary concept? Because uh, it is, as you might know, within Aquinas's Thomas's uh, philosophy, one of the transcendentals. And we began to speculate whether this could be a way of understanding this transdisciplinary. Um, work that we're seeking. So let me just give you a moment uh, of my own biography as a way of getting to where, uh, to why I'm concerned with beauty. About 15 years ago, I began to study the relationship of theology and science as a uh, Christian theologian, and um, it, it it was fascinating for me to see what were some of those connections. But as I began to do that and worked with the concept of the world and how scientists and theologians understand the world, particularly Karl Barth from the Christian theological side and Alfred North Whitehead from the scientific philosophical side, I realized that we needed, I wanted to go further. I have I've played percussion as a jazz percussionist for 35 years and so I've been engaged in artistic expression and, uh, and knowledge for a while and I wanted to integrate that then, thank you, with um, Thank you to Javier for helping me with the PowerPoint. And I also wanted to take in my studies at the at Berkeley in my undergraduate in comparative literature in French and uh, Greek uh, literature, and to understand in what way I could begin to find a common thread of knowledge or common thread of uh, quest among these various disciplines. So this comes out of a very personal desire to find uh, uh, beauty in different things that I'm involved in and in my own academic work. So I want to unfold a theological understanding of beauty. Again, I'm a Christian theologian, so that's I—that's uh, the form of theology that I work in through the insights of Jonathan Edwards and Karl Barth to a certain degree and then connect them with just a little uh, bit of the insights of Henri Poincaré, Werner Heisenberg, and Alfred North Whitehead. My definition of beauty is quite simple. To perceive beauty is to grasp rightness. To perceive beauty is to grasp rightness. So for both theologians and scientists, beauty arises in rightly perceiving and theorizing about their objects of study. So beauty is when a theologian, for example, discovers God's true nature, God's creation, God's ethical life, and begins to want to engage with that. Similarly, for the scientists, beauty involves understanding the natural world correctly. And so in that sense, because it is a grasping of rightness, it's a a lure, a lure for further study. And that's where the telos comes in. It's telic in a certain sense. When we grasp beauty, then we go further with wanting to see more beauty in our life, in in our discipline. So uh, let's say it this way then. Beauty expresses itself in these three forms. God and the world understood rightly, that would be theology and metaphysics. Life lived rightly, that would be the discipline of ethics. And nature understood rightly, which is the discipline of science. Now I come out of the reformed theological tradition, the the tradition that follows uh, John Calvin and so on. And in reformed theology, the key to life, what is the chief end of man, is the first question in the famous Westminster Catechism. It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So, the, 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 the uh, desire for human life is to enjoy the presence of the divine, you might say. And God's divine nature is glorious, and within glory is the concept of beauty. Divine glory also involves God's character of holiness, and that's God's perfection and otherness. And so our response as uh, theologians, as worshipers, is awe and praise, and the appropriate response, as I mentioned, is worship. Now, I don't have time to unfold this, but if you look at the texts from the classic text, that is the basis for reformed worship, which is Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees God in the great heavenly throne room and then bows in submission and uh, in uh, fear actually, that's the beginning of Reformed worship. So the Reformed linking of God's glory and our ethical life is another element of uh, it isn't just that we, we do um, worship as an act which is disconnected from our life in the world and in doing good, but we, it is ultimately to connect us to that life. But before I get there, let me just read from Karl Barth. The, uh, Swiss theologian of the 20th century, again, one of my, uh, one of my formative uh, voices here. He defines beauty in this way. To say that God has beauty is to say that God has the power of attraction, which speaks for itself, which wins in, and conquers. In fact, that God is beautiful, divinely beautiful. God loves us as the one who is worthy of love is God. That is what we mean when we say that God is beautiful. So there's a beauty of God, there's an attractive quality to this luminosity of God, as you might say. And then uh, following that with Jonathan Edwards, who comes, of course, from the 18th century, uh, from an early writing of his, 1725, he then connected this beauty of God, this glory of God, and for, for Edwards, beauty, excellency, goodness are all tied together with our own um, ethical life, But here is Edwards on God and beauty. For as God is infinitely the greatest being, the most beautiful and excellent, and all the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is but the reflection of the diffused beams of that being which hath an infinite fullness of brightness and glory. So uh, if you were more poetically minded, you could remember the, the Jesuit poet, Gerald Manley Hopkins, who wrote, give beauty back, beauty, 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 back to God, beauty's self and beauty's giver. This is a long tradition in, uh, the, in, the West, in Western philosophy that beauty is itself a reflection of the divine, and, uh, and Edwards was in that, in that mode, which is quite interesting as a Puritan, of course. But Edwards also then connected this cosmological beauty with ethical beauty, and that's where I think he, his contribution is significant. First of all, his contribution for me as a... Reformed thinker is important because the Reformation has not been the strongest place for for beauty in theology But then you see that Edwards ties not only God's God's beauty and glory with creation and the beauty of the natural world Which the scientists discovered and for him the scientist was Newton But it's also when we live in consonance and rightness with beauty in the world then we have a beautiful life so at cosmology um religious practice and ethical life all come together uh, i love a triangle so uh, the triad ultimately is a triangle of uh, that I, the the local society i run of philosophy theology and science but here's a triangle of cosmology ethics and metaphysics uh, and and uh, worship you might say so anyway that's uh, that's where as i see it the the key element of of this connection exists. Beauty exists where and when things fit together, when they consent to use Edwards' language. Therefore the most virtuous life is that which gives glory to God. So that's the first section, is trying to understand how a theologian in the reformed tradition would understand beauty. And I see it within this manifestation in response to, uh, to God's glory and beauty. Then I, uh, wa- I want to connect that with some discussion of how scientists have described beauty in their own work. Now, the way I'm presenting this paper, it may have sounded like I decided that there was this category of beauty, and then I wanted to fish around for where I could find quotes in the sciences. Actually, it's quite different. I found quotations from scientists and let that work inductively to understand what beauty is about. And that's how I came up with this uh, theory of beauty, which I think can be a, a, a fruitful research program, transdisciplinary research program for a connection, not only among, between science and theology, but among science, theology, art, etc. Um, let me read then a couple of key citations from scientists. The first comes from Henri Poincare in 1914. And he, uh, actually, let me go back for a minute. Once again, let me restate what the TELOS of scientific work is in relation to beauty. Here's as, as a lapidary form as I can put it. The telos of scientific work is to understand nature rightly and the way it fits together. Uh, Thomas Aquinas talked about fittingness. This might be a, a connection here. It is the right perception of and theorizing about the natural world which offers motivation and fulfillment. So this perception of rightness is a beautiful quest, it's a beautiful discovery, and it it gives us, it lures us because it's pleasing to us. And that's exactly what Poincare says. The scientist does not study nature because it is useful to do so. So he's moving against an intr- instrumentalist uh, view of science. He studies it because he takes pleasure in it, and he takes pleasure in it because it is beautiful. If nature were not beautiful, it would not be worth knowing, and life would not be worth living. I mean, the infinite beauty which comes from the harmonious order of its parts in which a pure intelligence can grasp." Further uh, along the line of beauty, quoting from Werner Heisenberg, and here we could see uh, a relationship in this quote between what Heisenberg calls coherence, and, which is parallel to this conception of rightness, and Edwards's idea of consent. Beauty for Heisenberg is surprising and objective. He discovered beauty in the midst of looking at energy at the quantum level. And here I quote, beginning to quote, the energy principle had held for all the terms and I could no longer doubt the mathematical consistency and coherence of the kind of quantum mechanics to which my calculations pointed. At first I was deeply alarmed. I had the feeling that through the surface of atomic phenomena I was looking at a strangely beautiful interior and I felt almost giddy at the thought that I now had to spread this wealth of mathematical structure. No, sorry, i, I, and I sorry, let's start again. I felt almost giddy at the thought that I now had to probe this wealth of mathematical mat- mat- structure that nature had so generously spread out before me. And then finally, Alfred North Whitehead, also uh, from the 20th century, he says very, very concisely, which is something for Whitehead that truth science and art are the consciously determined pursuit of truth and beauty and he continued then to integrate his concept of god here that god does not create the world he saves it or more accurately god is the poet of the world with tender vision sorry with tender patience leading it by god's vision of truth beauty and goodness so let me then summarize the scientific perspectives And offer some closing questions. What is it that the scientist discovers? First of all, Heisenberg asserts that scientists do discover beauty. The structures of the natural world are there and are uncovered by the work of speculative thought and experimentation. This would be against Hume and Kant, of course, and uh, that would say that science uh, or that beauty is only within the knower, and we can unfold that if you want in questions. Scientists describe beauty and nature as something outside themselves, and this fact points to its public or objective nature. Secondly, from Poincaré, the pursuit of science is related to the pleasure of discovering something beautiful. This pleasure provides motivation and thus what I call telos, direction. Third, Whitehead presents the grand claim that truth and beauty are directions toward which all science and art, and I'm going to, I would add theology, and even the universe itself are pointing. In his metaphysics, Whitehead adds, the lure of beauty includes God. So God lures us through beauty. God lures the universe through beauty. And these are, I believe, extremely provocative, fruitful, and astonishingly connected understandings about beauty. I then, uh, in in the section of the paper, continue to describe what a research program would look like if you use a Lakatosian form of a hardcore with auxiliary hypotheses and so on. But let me... uh, so let me say the hardcore would be this, this understanding of beauty as a grasp of rightness and how it motivates scientific, theological, artistic work. Can I, I just want to read one great quote, just uh, because we, of course, do have an artist who's presented already, uh, to say that not all art following the 19th century, the 18th, 19th century felt that beauty was central. This is really uh, key. So I'm going. I'm not. I'd have to prove that art is concerned with beauty. Uh, Sheldahl wrote about um, the contemporary art. uh, Wrote about contemporary art in 1969. Quote: Art is not usually edible, but it is known to satisfy certain hungers. In the last century, it was thought that beauty, that vitamin concentrate, was what we were after. More recently, Marcel Duchamp taught us that art is simply habit-forming like salted peanuts. And that beauty all along was the glutton's alibi. Nothing about art has ever been honest except our hunger for it. So uh, just to say that there's some challenges that I face, certainly. And that actually is why I, I want to, uh, just my uh, penultimate word here is some remaining questions. I think that any good research program, a transdisciplinary research program, would have questions. I mean, that's the fruitfulness of a research program. So I have four categories of questions. Since to grasp beauty is to understand order, how effectively would this research program take in disorder? things like ugliness, the presence of what theologians call sin or radical evil. Can the tell us evil can the tell us of beauty provide a theodicy? What about the temptations of beauty when one, what attracts us also leads to destruction? How can horrible, unethical people enjoy beauty? I had a fantastic conversation yesterday with, Um, with a colleague from uh, my alma mater, Princeton Seminary, and he reminded me that Josef Mengele, the doctor who was in charge of so many concentration camps, used to have symphonies played by the prisoners in the concentration camp before he would go and execute them. So that's the great problem here. If beauty is something that's uh, important for God, how can it, important for ethical life or for the divine, if you want to generalize it a little more, how can this lead us, How can people who enjoy beauty also be evil? You may also remember Schindler's List, when they, the Gestapo and the SS are clearing out the Warsaw Jewish ghetto and they're machine gunning out and down the, uh, the inhabitants who have hidden. And in the midst of it, one of the officers starts playing piano, a piano piece. And the other officer says, uh, it's in German, but he says, is that Bach? And he says, no, it's Beethoven. So this idea that this, I'm I'm three quarters German, so I'm not, uh, I'm only criticizing and critiquing my own ethnic heritage when I say that how could Germany, which at the time was this high level Western civilization engaged in beauty, be involved also in such level, this level of evil with the the Holocaust. So that's the first question. Second question, what are the links and tensions of the telos of beauty with evolutionary theory? So neo-Darwinianism tends to see beauty as fecundity and fitness for survival. I want to say this is actually, okay, I want to be bolder. This is moving beyond a humility project, but that beauty is more important than survival and fecundity. So we tend to think of beauty, if I were to just say beauty, Google it, you would find a lot about men's and women's bodies. You would find things about supermodels. We tend to have reduced beauty to this small form of sexual of sexual attractiveness, and uh, that would follow in many ways with neo-Darwinianism. I want to say that beauty is something that's broader and deeper and more important. Third, is the concept of beauty as telos, and this is a Christian c- question for the Christian theologian and me and others perhaps, is this some form of natural theology? And if you know that I'm influenced by Karl Barth, you'll know that uh, natural theology is, is a bad direction. It's a no-no. But I uh, think that within my tradition of, of John Calvin and so on, there has been a uh, natural theology but, or following Thomas, is beauty a particularly Christian notion, or does Christian theology need grace to perfect beauty, grace to perfect nature, in other words? And does it need distinctly Christian concepts to this dialogue, to bring to this dialogue with science? So in what way would it work from a Christian perspective? And then, from a scientific perspective, what about the times that science has to move beyond what is taken to be beautiful in order to gain greater accuracy? For example, one could consider Kepler's movement from the circle to the ellipse, right? That uh, there was this perfect form of the circle which was dethroned in order to find something that actually fit the data better, or as far as he could tell, the data. So that's that's the scientific question. I just want to close then with this comment, This conception of beauty obviously raises questions as well as solves them. But I take this to be the nature of a fruitful research program. And uh, I just mean research program in the sense of what guides my own personal research. So I have presented this conception of beauty as telos as the basis for a fruitful transdisciplinary uh, direction of research on the relationship among theology, science, philosophy, and art. Beauty in does, indeed does please us. Will the, contribution and confirm, sorry, will the confirmation of this theory be whether this research program sets scientists, theologians, artists, and philosophers on a beautiful and pleasing quest? That indeed is my hope for this project, my motivation, and really my telos. Thank you.